So, okay, so next week, clocks go for an hour. You lose an hour of sleep. Well, you guys don't care. I care. I will be here at like some hour that shouldn't exist on a clock. You guys will show up at noon because you'll forget to do it, and you'll be like, oh, sweet. I came in, I saw it, I left. That was it, right? It is like the worst day of the year. I hate, I, okay, seriously, we're in staff meeting on Friday, and I am, I'm doing my best to convince everybody in staff to like, we're just going to ignore it next week, and then over the week, everybody else is going to acclimate, and then the next Sunday, we'll just pop forward an hour. I got vetoed. It's like, what, I, again, I knew you guys would care. <laughs> like, 8.15 service, they're like, oh, yeah, that's what? That's, get out of bed. I'm like. 8.15ers, I'm already irritated because I'm there, right? <laughs> if we use this for the podcast, just take all this off, okay? I don't want them to feel bad if somebody listens to it. But anyway, it's, oh, I'm like, what did I do? I thought you, Judy was coming up to be like, <laughs> set your clocks forward, show up on time, and I'll probably be really irritable next week, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, if you have brought stuff for go bags, thank you so much for helping out in that. Uh, if you forgot, well, don't leave, but you know, talk to Donald out there, tell me you'll bring him something, but uh, go bags where we're trying to help out these, you know, displaced kids. So if you have brought something, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it. I'm sure they appreciate it as well. So uh, I think it's really been a good thing. I'll send out a picture in the email update this week of kind of all that you guys have given for it. And then you'd be like, wow, I forgot. Great. Whatever. So all right, maybe you're not my service. Okay, so <laughs> uh, if, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables uh, throughout the room. Inside those sermon notes, you'll get uh, some things about what we're talking about as well as some questions that we will go through. Maybe you can go through with your friends or family or gospel committees or whatever, kind of walk a little bit deeper about what we talk about on the back of that. Uh, there's also some announcements. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's free. It's called Version. If you click on Live and Version, we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. And you can get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with today's messages. Uh, sometimes other people use Version right now, but it's like one message from like 10 months ago. Ours is, ours is current, okay? We're going to be current. So we're like, if it says like, you know, August 2012, don't click on that one, okay? Click on the one that says, you know, Church of Revelation, week five, Maybe I have lost you now at this point. You're probably all just worried about the clocks changing, right? Yeah. Like, I cannot get it out of my mind. What's going to happen? Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? And this is a perfect verse to read next week. Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people to be those who wake up that we would understand the call and mission of the gospel, that we would live in ways that honor you and take out that message to everybody we come into contact with by our voices and by our hands and feet, and that you would be known as a great and good God who is deemed to save a people who needed saving. Amen. Have a seat. So what we are doing is taking a long, protracted journey before Easter to look at our hearts and what's going on inside of them, allowing God's Spirit to take this deep 
light and shine into our hearts and see what's going on in all the hidden recesses that are in there. Uh, we have called this our Lent-like journey going towards Easter. Uh, the real Lent, if you're from, from a tradition that actually celebrates Lent, only lasts a little bit over six weeks. We're doing ten weeks of this all the way towards resurrection and Easter. Uh, as we go through this, we're looking at who Jesus calls us to be, the ways we fall short, but most importantly, the redemption that he brings in the midst of it. It is to build tension and joy. So when you finally get to Easter and resurrection, and you understand that, we explode with this great celebration. Yeah. You are the only service that's getting that. Because you had more sleep. You'll have less next week, but... Still, go, go there with me. We've got to understand that our lives are actually found in Him. And so we have been on this journey starting with the seven churches that Jesus writes letters to in the book of Revelation. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. A lot of these churches resemble the church today. Uh, different, different aspects of who we are, what we can actually learn from Jesus in His admonition, in His rebuke, but also His comfort in them. All of this, what it's supposed to do is to refocus these churches and refocus us on mission. Now, what is mission? Mission is the life purpose of any person who calls Jesus their Savior. That is our life purpose. What are the two things really involved in mission? Number one, to glorify God. God has always been about His glory. We are a people about God's glory as well. And secondly, it is discipling one another, making disciples who make disciples. Well, those are big words. How do you do that? We do that by understanding the gospel. What is the gospel? We are a lost and broken people, and our God has come to rescue and redeem us from our fallenness and our brokenness. He takes away all that separates us from himself and us and each other, calls us back into relationship again because of what he has done. That is the gospel. We can be a people who some people like to say saved, some people say born again. We like to say redeemed as we trust and surrender our lives to who Jesus is. And so we live out the gospel, understanding that God has loved us and sought us and brought us home. We live that out in each other's lives. We speak about the truth, but we understand the truth of it, and that restores relationships with each other, as well as helping everybody to focus on who Jesus is through it. Mission. Mission. Now, with the way that we did that is we looked at first this church called Ephesus. Ephesus did church what we would call as a bomb shelter. This is where we would forget our first love and simply try and hide away from the world around us, either in a sense of fear of trying to protect what's our own or simply maybe comfort, trying to keep what's ours and keep everybody else at a distance. But the truth is we have nothing that is our own. It is all Jesus's. So we reach out with the gospel to the world around us because it's all his as we live on mission. We then looked at a church called Smyrna. Smyrna, they do church mirroring the world that's around them. This is where we become like everybody else around us so we won't lose our position or our comfort or whatever and people like us. And we see how Jesus calls us to find our comfort in him alone. And when we do that, we will live on Exactly. We looked at a church called Pergamum. This is a church that got rid of all discernment, where you just start to trust anything that says Christian on it. You throw a label on it, you got no discernment, you just swallow it, where we become lazy. And so we see that Jesus calls us to examine what we let enter our hearts and enter our minds. And we learn to value Him above all things. When we do that, we will live on... Exactly. Six of you got that. Okay. Uh, last week, we looked at a church that valued tolerance above all things, the church of Thyatira. And Jesus basically says, stop tolerating the things I don't tolerate. When we are more tolerant than Jesus, we have issues. When we are more tolerant than Jesus, we cease to live the... 
because we're just trying to get what we want out of it. Now, Revelation 3 is where we come to this church of Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write. And you got to stop there because i got to give you all the background about Sardis because it really makes sense in what Jesus says to this church. Uh, no good commendation is said to the church in Sardis. When Jesus shows up and doesn't say anything good, you got issues. That's not a good thing. Okay, so... As I said before, all these churches in our area called Asia Minor, here's a map. Sardis is kind of in the middle on the right over there. It's kind of a road that kind of runs through all of, all of these churches. And this is modern-day Turkey, but at this point, Rome ruled the world. The churches in this area, they loved Rome. There's competitions about who loved Rome more. They'd be like, we love Rome. Yes, we do. We love Rome. How about you? And everybody else in the empire is like, no. And they're like, no, we do. That's them. They, they just love Rome. They think Rome, Rome is great. Uh, they are probably more faithful to Rome in this area than any other place in the entire Roman Empire. So Sardis, it's a city has two levels to its city. There's a lower level and then an upper level. The upper level of the city is called Necropolis. Uh, this is Athens today, and this is the Acropolis in Athens today. Kind of cool looking like that. Now, this is Sardis today. And up on top of this, way over here on the side... Over there, you'll see this kind of little fortress kind of thing. That, that's all that's really left of the fortress that was up there. But this mountain is 1,500 feet above the valley floor. And that's their acropolis. It's, it's just, it's huge. It's foreboding. It stands above all of this. Uh, Sardis is one of the first places where they learn how to spin wool and then make it into clothing. Uh, they dyed wool. Uh, there's an entire textile industry that springs up in this area that kind of founds the city. It's one of the very first places where they minted coins, not just used them, but actually minted them for trading currency. Uh, they have great innovation, great technology, great wealth. Do you see any of the parallels? Yeah, that's a lot like America today. It's an important economic center in that region. So you back up from when Jesus writes the letter, you go hundreds of years before this, and Sardis, uh, gold was discovered in Sardis. So you have this king, his name's Croesus. He discovers the city of the people who are living there. He comes and he captures it, and he becomes the richest man in the world. There is so much gold in the river at Sardis at this time that they think that this is where the legend of King Midas was born. You know, everything he touches turns to gold. I remember the song in like elementary school, Oh, King Midas. No? Okay, I can't, that's all I know of it, so whatever. And so, on top of all this, you had this, you know, Acropolis, and this is the safest part of the city. So you, on the bottom, you have the commercial sites, the entertainment, the religious centers, the political centers, all in the lower valley. But, the com- but you know, the common people live there. The military live up in the fortress. And if it was ever attacked, everybody run up to that fortress, and they would be secure. It's considered to be impenetrable. No one could take that fortress because you had the city, the steep cliff walls, the massive wealth. Croesus's army made everybody think, I'll just won't even try and attack that because there's no way I could take it. Well, along comes in 546 BC, this Persian king named Cyrus. You probably know him from the Esther story. If you don't know the Esther story, you know him from the movie 300. For some reason, that always works better than the Esther story. Okay, so 300, right? He comes, he besieges this city. His soldiers can't get into the mountain fortress, and so they just sit outside and they watch. And eventually, one of the soldiers inside the fortress falls asleep on the walls, and his helmet falls off, falls down to the ground. And see, apparently helmets were a big deal then. You weren't supposed to lose your helmet. So this guy, you know, they keep watching, comes down, there's this hidden path, comes down the mountain, he gets his helmet, goes back up into the city, goes back up to the top, and all of a sudden, Cyrus' army is like, 
Boom, there we go. So they go in, take the hidden path, they sneak into the city, they take the entire city by surprise because somebody fell asleep. Sardis also, understand, they, they built their reputation on not being able to be conquered, but they were conquered. So, but that's not all. Like I'm selling you something on late night TV. That's not all, okay? The city that could not be taken was also taken again in 214 BC by Antiochus the Great. His army comes up against it. They go inside their walls. They take, you know, the people that they had killed and the animal carcasses, the guys in Sardis, and they would dump them over the walls. So you can say, this is what we think about you. We're dumping the carcasses over the walls. And what they started to notice, Antiochus's army, is that the vultures would start to you know, gather around the dead bodies, and some of them would land on the wall and they would just sit there, which let them know there were places on the wall that weren't guarded. And so they went up and they went to the city because Sardis was so comfortable in its position that it couldn't be taken that they left certain parts of their walls unguarded. So Antiochus' army comes in, goes in, takes the city, uh, by surprise again, unwatched, unguarded. This is a city of Sardis. It is overconfident, it is complacent, and so they're so relaxed that they thought they could not fall, and yet they fell twice because they were caught sleeping. How does that affect what we read? Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So you have Jesus staying outside of his church, speaking strong words of provocation into his church. It is this warning. Wake up. You have become complacent. You are falling asleep. Wake up. I mean, if you're here today listening to me say this or you know, on the video or the podcast or whatever, we've got to ask ourselves, where have we fallen asleep? Are you involved in something in your life that doesn't seem like a big deal or you act like it's not a big deal? You try to convince everybody else it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. It's destructive and it's destroying your relationship with Jesus and other people. I mean, when you, when you look at this church, you've got to ask if we are flirting with anything in our lives that we think is inconsequential, and yet it is a path that could take you to destruction. What are Jesus' words? Wake up. Wake up. Stop burying your head in the sand. But that's only part of the rebuke. Uh, so you keep going in this. Sardis is also a city. It was originally centered around uh, the worship of the mother goddess Kybala. I always thought it was Sybil, but apparently it's Kybala. There's her picture right there. Uh, she will actually later morph into the Greek goddess Artemis, which you saw in the book uh, when Jesus talked to Ephesus. But in Sardis, it was always Kybala. They loved Kybala. This is a, these are the ruins of her temple today. And in the back, kind of going up to the left, that's where it kind of goes up to that, that mountain fortress area. And so she is the epitome of the feminine. She is the mother goddess, uh, the goddess of procreation, of multiplying. Like some statues of her have like 12 boobs. It's just weird, right? Don't Google search it, right? Because you don't know what you're going to get, right? So she's about harvest and fruit, anything where something is generating something more, production. Uh, But as the mother goddess, one of the highest acts of worship of her was your own celebration of the feminine. And so this goes for guys and girls. You know, today you just have like your skinny jeans and... I'm kidding. Okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, if, if you're a man, you would dress like a woman to, to go and worship. But the highest and greatest form of worship was to transform yourself, if a man, into being more feminine. Less masculine, more feminine. And when I say transform, there's actually documented evidence of processionals where people, where these guys would dress in these white robes to worship Kybla, and then large members of men would take part in a removal ceremony, and they would take off their little man. 
boom, right? You know, they become like eunuchs. Highest form of worship. Frenzy celebration, Kabbalah, boom! Then they'd sing like, you know, first century chickmunks, ah, you know, just like that. There are accounts of literally several thousand men who would castrate themselves as a way of saying, Mother Goddess, I give you everything. And if you're a dude... That's like giving everything right there. You know, it's a bloody mess. But you would go in. You'd be wearing a robe. And as soon as you cut it off, you would bleed all over your robe. You would soil your robe. But you would also soil the robes of those standing next to you. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. How do you keep your garments from being soiled? You don't worship Kabbalah. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And, and again, what Jesus said, you know, Jesus is the one who makes us worthy. If you go back, when Jesus talks about their works, he always contrasts that with his works. He's, he says, you know, work, your works are dead. Why? Because your works are all based upon you and not what I have done. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. White in Rome is a symbol of victory and honor. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in Sardis, you also had what was called the royal archives. They were the, one of the leading administration, administrative areas in Asia Minor. And if you were a good Roman citizen, your names were kept on the rolls there in Sardis. Uh, we think uh, NSA data center today. Okay? That's, okay, well, three of you know what that is. The rest of you, oh, my goodness, read the news. Okay? You know, okay. So, so that, that's kind of what you, you did something bad. You'd be taken out of the, of the list in, in the city. So what does Jesus say? I will never blot your name out. I am not like Rome. I'm not capricious. You can trust me in this. Walk with me. And you've got to understand, life in Sardis was probably really, really hard for Christians. There's pressure from the empire to do what they said to do. There's pressure to worship Kybala, the mother goddess. And Jesus says, walk with me in white. Trust me. You have to understand, the book of Revelation, the whole point here is to show you an exalted picture of Jesus. A Jesus who cannot be managed, a Jesus who cannot be controlled or trivialized away. You start in chapter 1, and Jesus has white hair. It's not because somebody scared him and it all went white. It's to show that he is wise. I was sitting outside talking to somebody, and they go, man, when, you're, when your beard's going, it's gray. You look so much wiser. I'm like, That'll work on the video, not the podcast. Sorry. Anyway, uh, it, it, it talks about a sword coming out of his mouth. You know, that sword is truth. It goes through everything. His eyes are fire. There is nothing that he cannot see. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters to show his power. And this is what Sardis and we need in order to rise to any occasion. The whole book of Revelation is there to show you this exalted picture of Jesus. Because persecution might actually be coming. And how do you find your way through that persecution and still live on mission? You see Jesus for who he is. That's how you do it. Almost every one of these letters, Jesus says to these churches, repent, repent, repent. We have this bizarre notion of what repenting is today. You know what repentance really essentially means? Is there's Jesus, you're walking this way, turn around, follow him. There's all these ways in our lives. We start to fall asleep. We start walking all these other ways. Yet it's Jesus we should follow. He should be center. Why? Because Jesus died to rescue a loss and a broken people. It all centers around the gospel of who he is. And when it does that, we live on mission. Repentance is about coming back and living on mission. I'm really excited about this, by the way. I don't know if you can tell this. Um, 
And so, and so we understand this. The only way to live this way as God calls us to, the only way that we actually really begin to see Jesus as great and glorious, live on mission, is for us to become humble and repent of living our own way and following him. John the Baptist at one point says, he, Jesus, must become greater and I must decrease. Or he must increase and I must decrease. That's the fact. I mean, if, if you want him to increase and you get bigger in your life, if you want the greatness you know, that comes from seeing Jesus as, as he is, you've got to live like that. We repent, we follow him of, and everything that he has said. We live lives that lift him up in all things. And repentance isn't just remorse. Repentance is complete life change. Our lives are completely different. It's not, oh God, forgive me as I you know, drop acid again. You know, it's, it's we, yes, y- yes, y- what? Does that not connect with you? <laughs> we keep doing like the same things. Oh, God, forgive me. Asking God for forgiveness is not repentance. Repentance is turning around and following him, centering your life on the gospel and what he said, beginning to live on mission with and for him. So for us to become a people who are great, so to speak, is to see Jesus not just as this Galilean peasant, not someone who is frail and fragile, but someone who is mighty. He has risen from the grave. See, we're moving towards Easter at this point. Just, you know, risen from the grave, and he's in total charge. That's the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And that's the picture that people in Sardis need to see, that they need to understand. Because they had all these works. They have a name that is alive, but it's just about doing those works and not following Jesus. This church is probably growing. Probably got a lot of activity going on. It has a great reputation in the community. The church is known as being dynamic and and cutting edge and growing and busy. It's got all these deeds. Jesus says, I know your deeds. These deeds have a reputation for being so great. And what does Jesus say? I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Why? Because it's not about our works. It's about the work that he has done. Jesus says, I have to know that all these things that you're doing, you're dead. These are all dead things. They may look great on the outside. Everybody's probably looking at you from the outside and going, man, look how great they are. But on the inside, you've lost the reality of what it means to really follow me. You'll fall asleep, wake up. And this tells us actually a lot of things. I think there's a lot of churches in our country today that talk like this. They say, it really doesn't matter what you believe so much as long as we're working to make the world a better place. Some of these churches are the most popular churches in America. Uh, They're very popular in the media anyway. They're always talking to them and stuff. And they say things like, we have all sorts of people, you know, in our church. We have people who don't really know what they believe. We have people who don't really believe anything at all. But that doesn't really matter. The important thing is that we all do good deeds. What you believe, it's just this private thing inside of you. And so what what you really believe doesn't really matter. Now, at Element, we have people in all those places as well. People who don't know what they believe. People who don't believe anything at all. We're, We're glad that you're here. We want you to be here. But we do believe it matters what we believe. We do believe that. This is why we talk about Jesus every single week. Today's media doesn't think that churches are good for anything unless they are doing simply good deeds. As far as instructing people on how to believe, leading people into correct and right doctrine, the mainstream media is like, why? Why would you even do that? The only thing churches are good for is doing good deeds. And that is exactly what Jesus is condemning. It's exactly what he's condemning. He says, God cares about what's going on in here and here. And when we understand the gospel, when we're living with and for Jesus on a mission for his name, we will have good deeds. We will do good things. But we're not going to get burnt out on them because they're centered around him and not around our deeds, trying to work something off or do things. Oh, God, you're going to like me now because I'm working really hard. God says, that's all dead. It comes out of the place where you first start with your understanding of the gospel and me and mission, and then everything comes out of that. Mission starts with understanding what God has first done in 
us. And everything comes out of that. Imagine if you're married. Like your spouse says, I don't really know what I think about you, but the important thing is I do whatever you ask me to do. I do my chores. Some of you are like, sweet. That'd be great, right? No, that wouldn't be good enough. It wouldn't be good enough because ultimately that's not a marriage. You know, there, there's no love there. Oh, it's all duty. No, you need love in the midst of that. I mean, you'd be upset, hopefully, if your spouse said that to you. What Jesus is saying to this church is you've got a lot of deeds, but you don't have the inner reality that corresponds to what you say. You are like a tire with all air. You're all rubber and no air. Eventually, you're going to go flat. I mean, when he says you're dead, he's talking about the works. He says, wake up. He's not saying they're, they're non-Christians. He's not saying, oh, you're all going to hell. That's, that's not what he says. Some people read this and they assume that this is a church full of people who don't believe. He doesn't say that. He says your works are dead. You don't tell dead people to wake up. You tell a sleeping person to wake up. The people in Sardis are going to sleep spiritually. Jesus talking about it, people who receive the gospel, who began to understand this, and now they look like they're dying. But they're not dead. They're simply asleep, and they don't even realize it. They think they're doing all this stuff. What does it mean to fall asleep spiritually? Everybody in this room, you know, we need to ask ourselves this question. No matter who you are, I mean, this is corporately as a church and individually together. We've got to look at ourselves and say, am I asleep spiritually? Is it possible for a church to be sound in teaching with a great reputation and yet falling asleep spiritually? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly what Jesus says. I mean, these letters are written to these seven churches in Asia Minor a couple thousand years ago. And yet, I think they're also written to all the churches throughout the history of the world at the history of Christianity. And I think the only churches who are not asleep are the churches who are worried about falling asleep. <laughs> you know, I mean, we talk about this in staffing. We talk about staff retreat. Always like, you know, we fall asleep. What do we got to do? We got to you know, wake up. What's the next thing we do? Constantly assessing ourselves. You know, we, we keep forgetting what we were originally put here in this world to do. Live on mission. Life purpose of every saved person. We forget that. We fall asleep. And it's not just true of churches. This is true of every single organization that starts out. Everybody's got like this great burst of fiery passion. Yeah, we're going to do this. It's going to be great. We're going to change the world. And over the years, they become institutions. Because the next thing you know, instead of serving like some cause, they're simply serving the needs of the people who are in the institution. We call this institutionalized. Churches become like this all the time. All the time. People walk into a church. Oh, what kind of programs do you got? Or what do you got for this? Or what can you give me this? Or how can you serve me? How can you do this? Not understanding that what that just has happened is it's made the church into an institution. I'm going here to get this thing for me. The church is not an institution. The church is people living on mission with and for Jesus. That's what the church is. And so when we come in, we think, how can we serve? How can we serve together on mission together? You know, how, how can I be involved here? How can I be involved outside those walls? What can I do to live and serve and be on mission? That's the important thing. See, the church is called lampstands. What does a lampstand do? The church, no! First service, I spelled this all over my hand, so I'm going to try it. What does that do? Stands there, right? It's going to be all off center for the camera. Sorry. Okay, I mean, seriously, that's all it does, right? Lamp stands hold lamps. Duh. <laughs> right? Who's the light? Jesus! Jesus! <laughs> Gospel centered on the person of Jesus. This, we're there. We hold this up. We are just lampstands. And a church can be falling asleep long before its reputation begins to erode. 
You know, all churches fall asleep. Statistically speaking, something like every two to four years, churches start to fall asleep. This is one of the reasons that we're trying to rouse ourselves right now. Like we're taking a very focused look this year on mission and what it means. That's why we start with Lent and looking at the deep questions and hard things in our hearts and what's going on because we want to wake up. We want all of us to be people who come alive and understand the call of mission in our lives. We've got to listen to what Jesus says here at an individual level and a corporate level. Timothy Keller says this. When you're asleep, you cannot tell the phantom from the reality. Things that are insubstantial seem more substantial, and things that are more substantial seem insubstantial. You're like, what does that even mean? Imagine it's the middle of the night, right? And your spouse wakes you up and says, get up, the house is on fire. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 house is on fire. Okay, wake me up in the morning. I got it, right? Well, what has just happened? The substantial, the fire has become insubstantial because of whatever dream or sleep-deprived thing you're in right there. Time changed, you know. <laughs> you know. And, and what happens, the insubstantial, your sleep and your dream, has become more substantial than the reality and the truth, which is your house is on fire. So what does it mean to fall asleep spiritually? What it means is Jesus is not more real to you than anything else. That's what it means. Jesus is the same in your life as anything and everything else. And that should never be true for us. It should never be true if we are people who actually want to live on mission with and for Jesus. I mean, even ask yourself this question. You know, why did you come here to corporately get together with other people and worship Jesus today as a corporate? Why did you do that? I don't know. My wife made me go, habit, the alarm went off, element has the best cookies. When they don't have cookies, somebody buys donut holes. It's great. That's why I go there for the food. I mean, I mean, what, what is it? Do you understand why we do this? Because when we get together and we worship corporately together, Jesus becomes more real. I mean, maybe you have like a horrible week. It's like, man, I don't want to get out of bed and go to church. I just, that's horrible. And yet you show up and, and you get together with other believers and you walk out thinking, man, Jesus really is real. And, and all of a sudden things begin to change. Why? Because you've worshiped corporately with other believers. You've come together. I mean, if, if you don't go to like a, like a corporate worship service for a couple months, it seems less and less and less real. We gather corporately because it's so, Jesus is real. We get together like this because it reminds us of redemption. See, we have to understand that when we wake up, Jesus' death becomes more real than our sins. Everything people want to throw at you, you go to the cross. Right there, that's it. Jesus' resurrection becomes more real than our comfort. Jesus' love for us becomes more real than our failures. Everything begins to change. I mean, if, you, if you're living your life, and maybe you can't feel confident or you can't feel forgiven, you don't have the boldness of a clean conscience, it's because you're falling asleep and you're not understanding the reality of the gospel and the mission that we are called to. Everything centers around what Christ has done. That becomes central to all that we do. To wake up means that we have every means at our disposal to begin to live on mission with and for him. This is, you know, reading the scriptures, it's, it's prayer, it's talking to other believers, uh, you gather corporately together, uh, it's getting together in gospel communities where you can hold each other accountable, it's uh, praying to God, really, and saying, God, wake me up. Where am I falling asleep? So that his wisdom becomes more real than your wisdom. We get over ourselves and his death and love for us become more real than our failures. Timothy Keller says this. He says, what it means to wake up is to have Jesus become more real. It is a rousing of ourselves and one another. This is why Jesus continually talks about repentance and worship and these things go hand in hand. It's a continual thing. It can never be done. 
Because repentance is walking away from all the places we're falling asleep and starting to follow Jesus again. I mean, Jesus has sought us, but we still seek him in our daily lives as well. It goes hand in hand. I mean, this is, this is why repentance and worship, it is never finished. It's, it's never done. The only way we grow is through repentance and worship because it recenters us on mission. Martin Luther, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, pounds 95 theses on the Wittenberg door of this church. Number one is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You have to understand, repentance is not there to make you feel worse about yourself. Repentance does not make you feel depressed. If it does, it's not repentance. Because repentance centers you on the person of Christ. Repentance is not there for shame. It's there for hope and a recentering of our lives. And when our lives are centered where they're supposed to be, where Jesus says, go back to what you, your first love, what you knew at first, when he says all these things to these churches, and when that happens, you're going to walk in white. I will never blot your name out. You will wear a crown. I will give you one. I mean, imagine Sardis, and you're there. You're having a really hard time. There's a thousand temptations from a thousand different directions. That's America. You have a thousand temptations from a thousand different directions. Jesus says, wake up and follow me. It's the only way you're going to navigate all of that focused on the mission with him centered because of the gospel. And I know it is so easy to stop living the life Jesus calls us to. I know that. I know it's hard. In a culture that wants to make all of you Kaibalo worshipers and comfort worshipers and worshipers of your own importance, but Jesus says you have to wake up. Wake up. Hear the call of where I am calling you to, the center and understanding of the gospel and living on mission as a people with and for him. So here's my hard Lent questions for you guys this week. Uh, If you don't have these, you can grab sermon notes or get it on your phone uh, and then look at these because these are going to be in there. Uh, My first question is this. What is more real to you than Jesus? What is more real to you than Jesus? Secondly, where do you need to wake up? Where do you need to wake up? Thirdly, where have you simply given up because it's too hard? You know, maybe you're volunteering somewhere and it's like, oh, I don't have any energy anymore. Because maybe you made it all about you and your works and not about actually centering on Jesus. You're doing all this stuff, but not having Jesus as a center of that mission. Maybe you've given up working on a relationship or a marriage because, you know what, it's just too hard. It is just, believe me, I'm married. My wife is married to this, okay? She knows it's hard, right? But you give, oh, it's just too hard. I'm going to give up. That's not centering on mission, that's centering on ourselves. Uh, maybe you're, you're in a gospel community, and, and it's just hard. Maybe you've stopped going to a gospel community because it is so hard. Well, that's because we're all a bunch of hypocrites, you and me both, and it is hard to be in relationship with other people. But the understanding that if we center our lives and understand it on the mission of the gospel first, we will step into true gospel-centered communities. We will begin to live in that. We will sometimes say the, the hard things, We will have so much joy in the midst of it as well. Where have you simply given up because it's too hard? Literally, where do you find it easier to sleep through God's call than to simply answer it? You know what he's calling you, but I'd rather sleep through it. You know, maybe that's something in your gospel community as well. I don't know. (laughs) You know, uh, where, where have you soiled your robe? You know, your life and your soul, what has soiled that? And then where do you and I need to repent and begin to walk in white? Because that's Jesus' promise. He says, it is my finished work. It is what I have done. You will walk with me in white. No matter what other people have done, no matter what you've done to your robe in the past, you will walk with me in white. Because it's all about what 
he has done. It is all about what he has done. And our lives become re-centered upon the gospel. That we are lost and broken people. That we have all run our own way. And yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Takes away our sin. He rises from the grave to rise us back to life again. So we can have a relationship with God again. And we can in turn have a relationship with other people again. You don't have to crucify people for their sins. Jesus was already crucified for them. Okay? We trust him to be the beginning and end of our faith. This is why we go to communion every single week. It's a place to remember while you break that cracker and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice reminds us of his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for you and me so that we can be this people who live lives because we ourselves have been redeemed by the body and the blood of Jesus. That he rises from the grave and we get to walk in newness of life centered upon him. Our God just doesn't save us and go, all right, that's it, done. He sets us on mission with him. It's amazing that he wants to partner with us as such a broken people, and yet he does. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion, be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer. I mean, if you're in a place today where it's like, it's like I get it. I, I get it, and I'm not really living on mission. I don't understand what that is or what that means, and I want to come awake, and I don't really know how to come awake. You know, they may not have all the answers. You know, and that's okay, but what they can do is talk to you about Jesus and maybe re- begin to recenter us on Jesus because Jesus is the answer to life's questions. And so we center on the person of who he is. They'd love to pray for you about that. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is be part of our worship. Uh, I said that last service, and then a baby started to cry, and I was like, talk about money, kids cry. You know, <laughs> uh, And we don't... We don't it's a response to what God has done. So we don't pass a plate, you know, because we want it to be real and genuine. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat. Uh, you know, I don't know what's still back there now. My wife ran and grabbed donut holes this morning because she had snacks. Spent out last night at like 11 o'clock. I got snacks. So golden donut to the rescue, right? <laughs> so there's some food. So we invite you guys to grab something to eat. And when you do that, you know, talk to some other people around you. You know, take some of those questions this week and talk amongst your family or, or if you're married, you know, talk with your spouse or if you, if you got, uh, you know, you're not married, but you got friends, talk with your friends. If you want to be involved in the gospel community, sign up, we'll get you connected and you start to talk about some of these really deep things because we're supposed to be a people who help one another center upon the gospel of Jesus and live on mission together. I don't think anybody would ever live on mission by themselves. You know, this is why Jesus sticks us in community with one another because we are so easily a people who fall asleep. You need these friends to look at you and say, you need to wake up. And then you get all mad. Well, you're mean. You need to wake up. Okay, we'll both wake up. Whatever. You know, it's wake up. Follow Jesus. Be a good thing. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. We need people who come awake from our slumber because Christ has shined the truth of the gospel upon us. And so we live on mission with and for him. And hopefully by the time we get done talking about all these churches in Revelation and hit Easter, you guys will get it. So much so that you're like, stop talking about it. When you're like, stop talking about it, I'm like, good, you're starting to get it. You're starting to get it. Because our mission is never done. Our mission is never done. Because we will always glorify God. And we will always be gospeling one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who has partnered with us in your mission. That you've allowed us to come and be involved with you in it. And Father, I ask that we would wake up 
from all the places where we don't know we're asleep and all the places where we, quite frankly, fall asleep on purpose because we don't want to hear you in the midst of a situation. We don't want to do what you call us to do. We want to, we want to sit back and just sleep through all the hard things in life and only want comfort. And yet, unfortunately, or fortunately, you're a God who is not about our comfort. You're about our holiness. And so you raise us to be the people that you call us to be. I ask that you would teach us how to honor you by our wakefulness. By understanding the mission that you call us to better. That our lives would be re-centered on the truth of the gospel. We ask that all the, the darkness that sits upon our souls be lifted. And that we would rise from our sleep and come awake. And that our lives would be about your glory and your honor and your goodness. And that in turn would go out and touch everyone around us because we are living the mission that you call us to. That we do read your scriptures, but it's not just about reading the scriptures. That that we do pray, and it's not just about prayer. That we come alongside one another, and it's not just about that. It's about glorifying you in all things. Understanding the center of our calling first, so everything comes in line behind that. Teach us to be a people who live as your ambassadors and your children to the rest of this lost and broken world. Thank you for loving us the way that you do and continually rousing us to wakefulness. Teach us to live in that wakefulness. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.